All right. Just want to make sure that my microphone is on. I'm always very cautious in taking it, turning it off when people are singing because I don't think it would be good. Like, who is that guy in the worship team that really cannot hold any tune? Anyway, um, James already talked about calendars and them being filled up and that there's a lot of stuff going on today. Um, on the LIED calendar, there's only one thing, and that is my wife's birthday today. <laughs> Happy birthday, honey. <laughs> I want to start off, um, by the way, if you don't know me, I am Denny. I'm one of the pastors here. But I want to start off today with a question. Have you ever taken your Bible, opened it up, read it, closed it, Put it back on the shelf and not have the slightest clue of what you just read. Does that happen to anybody or am I the only one? It happened to me this week, which was especially problematic (laughs) since I was asked to preach on Hebrews chapter 13. Now, the reason why I bring this up is to let you know that you are not alone. This happens to me as well. And I bring this up this morning not to apologize in advance for a lousy sermon. (laughs) It actually turned out quite all right, if I may say say so. But I bring this up to, to comfort you and to sympathize with you, but also to encourage you to take that book off the shelf every now and then, to spend some time in prayer And to ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand, because the reality is that none of us were able to understand any spiritual matters without the help of the Holy Spirit. And then, as you keep reading, watch God reveal himself through the words and the sentences on a page. Now, obviously, I had to. And sometimes that is a good reason for you as well. If you have to, you just keep coming back at it. So read a passage several times if you have to. I had to do this. And don't be in a hurry. Slow down. As a matter of fact, I would actually say that reading slowly might actually get you there faster. Reading slowly might actually get you there faster. Try not just to comprehend, but try to let it speak to you right where you are. Now, I think it's the difference between, between these two concepts, the concept of understanding and being transformed by the word that really slowed me down this week. God really wanted me to wrestle with this passage a little bit, and I will cue you in a little bit later on how he did that with me. But for the last 12 weeks, we have been studying the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is not one of the easiest books in the Bible. I think it might actually be one of the reasons why you left the book right on the shelf. It's a hard book to understand. And I think one of the main reasons why this book is hard to understand is because the audience to whom the book was written, or we actually learned that it was more of a sermon, so maybe to whom the sermon was preached, was so different than who we are as a people. You see, the target audience of the writer of the Hebrews were Jewish believers 
who suffered deep and harsh persecution at the hands of the people that they once were a part of. The people that persecuted them might have been their fathers and their mothers and their brothers and family members. And as pressures kept on building and building, some of them or even many of them might have come to the point where they really started to ask, is this really worth it? Is following Jesus really worth everything that we are facing right now? So the author of the book of Hebrews deals with this issue head on. And in doing so, he addresses the people right where they are. But unfortunately for us, that is not where many of us find ourselves today. You see, they faced persecution, brutal persecution. We don't, or at least nothing of the same magnitude. They were considered a cult, an offshoot of, of Judaism that had gone crazy. We are part of something mainstream. They had switched religion, or at least that is how their fellow Jews saw it. Most of us grew up in a Christian environment. And for them, faith was not just something that was viewed as something you did on your own or that you belonged to by yourself on a personal level. But for them, faith was something that was part of their culture, who they were as a people. We, on the other hand, live in a postmodern society where all truth is relative and where can anybody, anybody can pick their own god or their own gods or their own religion. So the preacher, as I want to call him from now on, builds his case that Christianity is better, or perhaps even better said, he builds his case that for Christ by showing them that Christ is not the opposite of what they believed or who they were as Jewish people, but it is a continuation or a fulfillment of all to what the Old Testament had spoken of, to, that all their traditions had pointed to and all their prophets had been talking about, that Jesus truly is the accumulation of everything that they had been looking forward to. So the preacher comes to the point that he says that Jesus is, no di is not different than what you believed before, but Jesus is better than what you believed before. Or maybe even more appropriately, Jesus is the bestest. <laughs> now he argues why Jesus is the bestest by comparing Jesus with the former way of how the Jews used to do things and the beliefs that they held. And he draws directly some examples out of the Old Testament. He quotes a lot of Old Testament scripture, and he tells us that Jesus is better than the angels. You find this in chapter 1. Jesus is better than celestial beings that are in the presence of God all the time and that we often associate with purity and holiness, and he says Jesus is better than them. He goes on and he says Jesus is, is better than humans. He is free of sin. He lives in perfect harmony with the Father. He is better than humans. He's also better than Moses, the writer goes on. Moses, who was the receiver and the administrator of the Jewish law. 
Jesus is better than the Sabbath. Jesus is the only one who can give you true rest and true peace, the author argues. He says that Jesus is better than any sacrifice. That he is the only one who could be an atonement once and for all. Jesus is better than any high priest, even better than Melchizedek. He does not have to go through the same motion year after year. His sacrifice does not just cover sin, but provides righteousness and holiness as well. In our small groups, I have often likened the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews to the following illustration. I don't know if you can put that up there. We're familiar with this, right? This is 10 blind guys, or I think in this case it's 6 blind guys, that are feeling what an elephant feels like. So the guy who's feeling the tusk thinks that he's dealing with a baseball bat, while the guy in the back who's touching the tail thinks he's dealing with a broom or, or a paintbrush. That's kind of what the author of Hebrews has been doing. He's been putting all these things together, and now he's kind of bringing it all together and holds it up and says, Jesus truly is better. You can take it down there. At the end of chapter, or somewhere in the middle of chapter 10, when he is done kind of painting all these pictures, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful." So the author, so for the, for the first 10 chapters, the author proves the superiority of Christ, which then, and I think this is really important, I really want you to hear this, the superiority of Christ should then lead to the superiority of our faith. He says, if Jesus really is the best, or the bestest, then our faith in him should also be the best. And he does this by giving two arguments. The first argument is what we just discussed. Jesus is indeed better. Everything that I just mentioned before, him being higher than any priest, him being better than Moses, all of this points to the fact that Jesus is indeed better than anything or anyone else. And so our faith in him should be better than anything else. But then he goes on and he says... The second reason why our faith is better than any other faith is the fact that Jesus is not just the object of our faith, but he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. You can read this in chapter 12, verse 2. Now, the Greek word translated author can also mean captain or chief leader or prince. So, Christ is the originator of our faith, But he also controls and steers our faith as a captain steers his ship or as a monarch proceeds and cares for his people. 
the Greek word perfecter literally means completer or finisher and speaks to bringing something to its conclusion. So if you put those two together, we see that Jesus as God both creates, sustains, and perfects our faith. You see, saving faith is a gift from God. It is not something that you and I come up with on our own. It is a gift from God that comes from Christ. Ephesians, in Ephesians, Paul reminds us and he says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not from yourself, it is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. You see, we don't just find God. You hear that term often, right? I found God. No, God found us. You see, we don't just commit to God, he commits to us. And we don't just love God, he first loved us. So to prove that our faith is the best, or the bestest, he uses the same technique which he used to prove that Jesus was the best. By comparing the old with the new. And in order to do that, he brings in this fast squad of biblical heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. And he compares them with what we currently have in Jesus, who again is not just the object of our faith, but the sustainer and the initiator as well. Now, James preached on this last week in a very compelling way when he told us that no matter how good chapter 11 was, and chapter 11 is good, right? I mean, I I think most of you are, it's probably your favorite chapter in Hebrews. Chapter 11 was good. Great examples in there, right? I mean, we saw Enoch and and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Samson, and it went on and on. And yet, James said, chapter 12 was even better. Chapter 12 was even better because it addresses our faith in and through Jesus Christ. Now, were you here two weeks ago? Did you get to listen to our own heroes of the faith? Did you get to listen to Michelle and Kirsten and to Rick? Michelle sharing with us a clear call of coming to Santa Barbara, but the execution is not really taking place in a way that she had envisioned. You remember when Kirsten said, when I wanted to go to Honduras, it was not really my safety that I was concerned with, but being a danger for Christ. Or Rick, while he took us in this journey that he has been walking for so many years, and many of us in the church have been walking along with him in dealing with a drug-addicted son. The writer of the Hebrews is telling us that their faith is better than that of Moses, than that of Noah, than that of Rahab. Our faith, your faith, my faith is better than that of the Hall of Fame presented to us in chapter 11. Why? Not because of what Kirsten and Michelle and Rick have done, but because of Jesus, once again, who is not just the object of our faith, but who initiates and sustains and completes 
our faith as well. That was 12 chapters in a in an, uh, short, in a um, whatever you call summary, summary, I guess. Today we find ourselves in chapter 13, and uh, I would invite you to stand with me. And I would, I would invite you to listen to this text knowing what you already know about the rest, that we're really at the point of your faith is the bestest. And now we find ourselves here. And it says, keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away with all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most high place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. Amen, by the way. (laughs) For that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and a desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the internal covenant brought back uh, from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom, the glory, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, chapter 13 feels a little disconnected from the rest of the book. Wouldn't you agree, Sam? You see, it seems to be a lot more applicational or behavior-driven in its context. The preacher tells us to show hospitality to strangers, to remember those in prison, 
and who are mistreated, to honor marriage, to keep our lives free from the love of money, and to be content with what we have. He goes on telling us to remember our leaders and to have confidence in them and to submit to their authority and to imitate them. I would invite you to imitate James if you need to pick someone to imitate. I'm actually imitating, trying to imitate James as well. But the reality is, is that we are all to be material worthy of imitation, right? I mean, we all should be able to say, as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. He continues to say not to be carried away by strange teachings and to do good and share with others. Now note that this list contains things to do and things to stay away from. It addresses both the sins of omissions and the sin of commission. Now in the church, we have historically predominantly focused on the sins of commission. Or in plain English, the sins of doing bad stuff. Murder, adultery, theft, addictions, I mean, you name it, right? But not doing what we are called to do as Christians, as a church. In the case of Hebrews 13, not being hospitable. Not taking care of the prisoners or the mistreated. Or not to submit to authority is sin as well. It's the sin of omission, or in plain English, not doing what you're supposed to do. Now, everyone with children recognizes that both omission and commission can be destructive, right? Not doing what you're supposed to do can be at least as bad as doing bad things themselves. So as a church, and as a Christian, it's important to realize that sinning is not just limited to doing bad things. And when you don't do those bad things, somehow everything is hunky-dory between you and God. But that still leaves us with the question of why Hebrews 13 ends with this laundry list of behavior. Did the author not just spend 12 chapters building his case that the old covenant, including the law, fell short? That it is neither our own effort nor the sacrifices in the temple that can truly set us free? Are we to read this list in Hebrews 13 as the New Testament version of the, new, as the, of the Ten Commandments? Thou shall not... Thou shalt show hospitality to strangers. Thou shalt remember those in prison and are mistreated. Absolutely not. You see, there is a reason why the application can always be found in the back of the epistle. Whether it is Hebrews chapter 13, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, or Colossians chapter 3 and 4, or Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, you get the picture, right? You see, in our misunderstanding of the relationship between grace and works, between grace and works, which often, even in the church, is presented as two things that are mutual exclusive, we often 
tend to reverse the order of cause and effect or ignore it altogether. Now, just to make sure you are familiar with the theory of cause and effect, right? I mean, just in case you're not, I brought a little video just to show you what cause and effect is. So if you can play that, that will be helpful. Obviously, is something better than an impeachment strategy. <laughs> but you get cause and effect, right? <laughs> but you see, the guiding principle in all of Scripture, and I'm going serious right here, sorry, but, but the guiding principle in all of Scripture is that faith in Jesus causes a change in behavior. Faith in Jesus causes a change in behavior. It is not a change in behavior that causes us to have faith, nor is, it a, a nor is a change in behavior a prerequisite of attaining faith. We often get this wrong in the church. But Jesus says, you are welcome. I don't care what clothes you wear. I don't know, I don't care what your marriage situation is right now. I don't care if you have been abused or are an abuser. I just want to have a relationship with you. But when we have this relationship, then I will start working in your life. And the old is not good enough anymore. I will start changing and shaping and molding you. But it all starts with faith. And because of that, the authors, especially of the New Testament epistles, always start out by first of all addressing the question of our faith. What do you believe? Or maybe even better, who do you believe? In whom do you believe? Why do you believe? And in what do we have our hope? You even find this in the Ten Commandments, right? The first four commandments are dealing with issues of faith. The last six with behavior. And in chapter 11, do you remember? We found that obedience and action were rooted in faith. It was by faith that Noah built the ark. It was by faith that Moses' parents held him back. It was by faith that Abraham left his own country. 
behavior without faith or compliance with what God wants us to do without relying on his grace is sin as well. It's not the sin of omission. It's not the sin of commission. But it's what I would like to call the sin of do-goodism. And the Bible warns us against this. In Isaiah 64, we see that when we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. And this is the story of my faith life. And I promised you at the beginning that I would come back to how God has been working on me this week, and in reality, how God has been working in me over my entire walk with him. just want to bring up a little, little uh, chart, if you, if you can. Some of you are familiar with this. This is a way of profiling people. From the left, on the left side, you got the introverts. On the right, you got the extroverts. On the bottom, you got people orientation, intuitive. On the top, you got analytical task orientation. Now, you probably are aware of the fact that most people are either people-oriented or task-oriented. I don't know if you happen to know what you are yourself, but for people-oriented folks, the interaction with others is what drives them and what energizes them. If they go to work, they go to work because they have wonderful colleagues and they get to work together with so-and-so, and whether the job sucks or not, as long as the people around you are great, you like going to work. If that's you, you are on the bottom half. If you are in the top half, if you're like me, it's tasks that get you really excited, right? I get to complete this. I get to build that. I get to design that. The people that I do that with, huh? the task is what really drives me. You see, I am squarely on top of this diagram. Pastor James, I would argue, dominates the bottom half of this diagram. I mean, everybody feels loved by Pastor James, right? I mean, is that an understatement or what? You see, the problem for people like me, for task-oriented people, is that we tend to value people less on who they are but more on what they do. I see this in my daughter as well. If you ask Tara to go and play with so-and-so, she rarely shows interest. If you ask her, can you do this? Oh, by the way, can you use that person in doing that? She's all over it. I realize that this can put people off. I really do. I understand that sometimes people, even people here in this church, might look at me and wonder if they are more than just a means to an end. You see, for people like me, task-oriented people, relationships evolve around things being done for each other and accomplishments. You can take it down, by the way. The way we are wired, task-oriented or people-oriented, also plays a role in our relationship with God. 
And I realized that for years and years, I've been trying to fuel the relationship that I have with God by trying to complete tasks for him. And in doing so, I am reversing the order of cause and effect. You see, it's my faith, my faith nor God's affection for me, my faith nor God's affection for me will grow by means of me completing tasks for him. But only by a deepening of my faith that is soundly rooted in Jesus is that what should drive my behavior. See, this is a simple, simple thing, and it's a hard one for me, and I'm sure for some of you to understand, but we really, truly do not have to impress God. We don't. Jesus has already did this for us. You see, he loved me first and foremost because, I don't know. I really don't know why God loves us so much, but he does. You see, it's hard for me to realize that good deeds, works, whether it's taking care of strangers or submitting to authority, whatever it may be for you, right? Good deeds are nothing more than apples on a healthy tree. You and I, we cannot grow apples. We only can grow a healthy tree. The apples will follow. So the preacher of Hebrews offers an alternative that helped me tremendously this week when he makes the case that we should have faith in Jesus because he is the best and because he is the author, the initiator, and the perfecter of our faith. And it is this faith and this faith only that should drive my behavior. Holiness can only be attained in that way. And in line with that, as he walks us through this laundry list of behavior, He goes back time and time again to Jesus. As if he wants to say, I know, I know, I understand you, that hospitality thing, not just for people that you like and care about, but strangers, people that you don't like, sharing your possessions with him, sharing your heart with them, or to go to prison. People were in prison because they were Christians. You show up as a Christian, it's like walking into the lion's den out of your own free will. Are you crazy? I wouldn't do that. I would stay away as far as I possibly could from authority and from jail. Or he tells us to live a life that is free from the love of money. Does this guy know our society? A society and age where success, worth, and identity hangs on this very thing? A couple of weeks ago, Josefina went to a party with a friend of hers. It's one of those buy stuff parties. And (laughs) she got it for free. But (laughs) so she goes there, and this is a lady that has a child in the class of Tiago. And since he is in kindergarten, new relationships are being formed, right? Mommies are hanging out with each other. So she goes over there. And she goes with a friend of hers. So she comes back, and I ask her, How was it? And she said, Chanel is her name, right? Chanel. She has it all. So what do you mean she has it all? Beautiful house. 
all by itself, super big, four-car garage, best thing yet, it has an 89 CJ Jeep, raced and ready for rock crawling, she has it all. <laughs> and that made me wonder, and I said, what if people were to say that about us? What if people were to look at us and see our love for Jesus, not just in the way we talk, but in our actions as well, and they say to each other, they have it all. Not just in regards to cars and mansions and boats, but in regards to peace and joy and hope and love. So when all of this seems to be impossible, because Jesus does call us to high standards, he really does. So when all of this seems impossible, when the amount of work seems to be too great, when staying in that broken relationship with your spouse too difficult, or trusting your leaders too far-fetched in an increasingly cynical and corrupt world, the preacher redirects our attention from the task at hand to Jesus. And he writes things like this. And I will give it to you. Chapter 13 has some of the most beautiful promises in all of Scripture. He reminds us that God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Verse 5. So that we can say with confidence, verse 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Now let me remind you, mere mortals put these people in prison. They tortured them. They did all kinds of things. That was the, the, in that context, they were saying, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Verse 8, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Everything that we have learned over these 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews about Jesus, all of that is applicable to you and I, because Jesus doesn't change. When Josefina was at her party, she went with a friend of hers. Her friends happened to have a triplet. Those triplets are all the same age as, um, as Tara's age, and somebody got volunteered to take care of them while they were shopping. That was me. Now, these, the two, these two boys are highly competitive, and they wanted to play sports. So we played a little bit of soccer, we played a little bit of basketball, but then they wanted to play football. Now, you can picture it, right? They got a five-year-old son and a 41-year-old man against two seven-year-old boys. Now, this man happens to be a European, so obviously, no clear context. These guys were clearly better than us, the two seven-year-olds, right? I mean, everybody sees that. We were completely outweighed in capability, capacity, you name it. So we start, and I'm defending, and Tiago's behind me, and these boys are like running. So I push them back, and they are down on the ground. So I'm like, <laughs> great, got it. So I turn around to kind of get back on my line, and these boys grab the ball and start walking 10 yards forward. I'm like, what the? He's like, face mask violation. It's like, like, face mask violation? I don't even wear a face mask, nor do you. Anyway, benefit of the doubt, so we go on. Same thing, exact same scenario plays out. False start, 10-0 penalty. 
So anyway, by sheer penalties, they moved the ball all the way into the end zone. And I'm looking at Tiago, I'm like, I have no clue what just happened. These, these, these rules are constantly changing. I mean, literally, the goalpost is being moved as we go. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that that is not how we live our life with Jesus. That the rules are not changing on us. That the expectations are not changing on us. But that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He goes on in verse 9 and he says, It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Verse 12, he says, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to do what? To make the people holy through his blood. You see, our holiness comes from Jesus, not from the things that we do. And then he ends and he says, May our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. Jerry Bridges calls this dependent responsibility. Dependent responsibility. He says we are responsible to respond to the moral commandments of scriptures. But we are absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit to enable us. We are responsible to respond to the moral commands of Scripture, but we are absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit to enable us. Let me pray. Lord, we, uh, we come before you this morning. And I realize, Lord, that I have painted a picture of the dynamics between faith and works that is based on the way that I see reality and how I experience it. Lord, some, in this, some people in this group might be on the same, in the same position as I am. We might be people for whom the love of you is just too hard to grasp. Something has to be done in our sight to make that happen, to warrant that. Lord, for those people and for myself, I want to confess. I'm sorry, Lord, for the fact that I have misinterpreted our relationship with you. Lord, that doing good things is not a neutral thing, but it is actually sin if I don't rely on your grace to sustain me. So, Father, please forgive me for that. I want to ask you to set the people that are going through the same thing as me free, Lord, and to show them that there's nothing that we can do to make you love us more. There's nothing that we can do to love, make you love us in the first place. You already did that, and you already do that. But I also realize, Lord, that there's people on the other side who are basking in the grace and feel that there is nothing that needs to be moved. And I think the writer of the book of Hebrews really addresses this issue well. We as a people are to be holy. We as a people are to take care of people who are misfortunate, who, don't, who are orphans, who are widows, who have been mistreated. 
to shine your glory in a broken world. Lord, this doesn't go to the heart of our salvation. This goes to the heart of having a relationship with you. And I just want to ask you, Lord, to really work this out in, in all our lives, whether we are on the side of works or on the side of grace. Help us to get a good picture of what that looks like, Lord. But one thing I know and one thing I am thankful for, and that is the fact that you died, you sent your son to die for us, not just to save us, but to make us holy. Not just to cover up our sin, but to change us as human beings. Not just so that past guilt has been canceled, but for us to change our ways and take on the work that you have entrusted to us in this world. Lord, I want to thank you for this book, this book of Hebrews. We acclaim and proclaim the fact that Jesus is the best, and thank you for that. Thank you for the fact that you have stirred in us and awoken in us a faith in that very fact, Lord, and that you sustain it and that you enable it and that you complete it. Lord, we want to be altars on your sacrifice. In the same way as this food is laying here on this sacrifice, we want to be laying on your sacrifice, ready to be used by you in any which way possible. And when we run into difficulties, when we run into oppositions, may we claim the promises of Hebrews 13. May we know that we have a God that will never, 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 ever forsake us or leave us. May we know that we have a God that helps us, that we have to fear no mortals, that we have our hope in you. May our hearts be filled with grace and our holiness be found in your blood. Lord, thank you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.